This week on Geek Explained, with the release of Dragon Ball Z Kakarot on PS4, Xbox One, and PC, we're taking a look back at the original series and counting down the top five fights in Dragon Ball Z. Welcome back to Geek Explain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we Geek Explain it. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is all about Dragon Ball Z. I have been a huge Dragon Ball fan ever since I was a, a very small child, and uh, I've always wanted to do an episode based around Dragon Ball in some form or fashion, and uh, with the release of Dragon Ball Z Kakarot, which is out everywhere as of this recording, uh, now's kind of the perfect time. So we'll be talking about and ranking my personal top five fights in all of Dragon Ball Z. We're talking about movies, we're talking about the animated series, we're talking about one-shots and TV specials. We're covering it all and ranking them for my top five. Also, we are back with Arrow on our weekly review, the penultimate episode for the final season, and of course, this week's Comics Countdown. But before we get into all of that, let's check in with this week's news. Alright guys and dolls, so I've got some news for you this week. Uh, actually, quite a lot. I didn't think it was going to be this much uh, when the week started, but pretty excited for all this stuff. So we have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. We're going to start off with film. Uh, we're going to go film, comics, miscellaneous, and into TV, because TV is kind of the heavy hitter when it comes to news this week. So starting off with film, it has been kind of rumored, semi-announced that J.J. Uh, Abrams' company Bad Robot is looking into Justice League Dark. That is the uh, uh, kind of paranormal um, voodoo magic side of the DC universe. This covers characters like Swamp Thing, like Dead Man, like Zatanna, like Constantine. Uh, there's been rumors of a Justice League Dark film for a while, kind of helmed by uh, Guillermo del Toro, uh, off and on for the project. And now, after, you know, J.J. Uh, Abrams signed that big uh, money-making deal with Warner Brothers, it looks like this is going to be his big project. Uh, from the reports that I've been seeing, it looks like they're looking at making it kind of a, uh, a multi- a multimedia franchise, so they're talking film and TV. I don't know how that's going to work, if they're going to have, like, you know, five seasons in a movie, or if it's going to be like, here's the A Squad in the movies and the B Squad on TV. But I'm interested to see what they do. I'm kind of surprised that this is going to be J.J. Abrams' first DC project. I think uh, myself and a lot of people kind of thought that his first foray into DC was going to be with Superman, which seemed like the obvious choice. Though, technically, though for me personally, I guess um, 
after Rise of Skywalker. I'm not sure how close I want him to get to um, a big blue Boy Scout. But who knows? I'm interested to see what they do. Uh, Justice League Dark has a ton of great characters, some of which are wildly underrepresented. We're talking Dead Man and, of course, Zatanna. But, uh, yeah, I'm interested to see what they do with it. Hopping over to comics news, pretty much, again, just one uh, piece of news this week. It was announced that uh, the Children of the Atom book, which is part of our Dawn of X, Hickman, X-Men run, um, got a little bit more clear. Uh, a little while back, they released a teaser for the upcoming comic that showed off um, Angel, Cyclops, Jean Grey, Nightcrawler, and Gambit. It wasn't really obvious they didn't really release anything besides the image on what this series was going to be on but in the past week that cover has been altered showing off new characters which kind of resemble the chimeras that were teased and uh shown throughout Hoxpox. and now we know that the book we have their creative team it's going to be written by vita ayala with art by bernard chang uh vita ayala i'm not super familiar um but bernard chang has worked on the batman beyond book for dc for a while big fan of his art so i'm looking forward to it the current covers that they've been releasing are by rb silva who is just doing a great job just really doing a great job with this uh, hickman x-men era but from the let me see here i'm looking at the press release and da, 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 da. ayala explained something that i think is really interesting so i'm gonna go ahead and quote uh the initial seed of the idea actually came from editor chris robinson what if the x-men had sidekicks my take on it became what would actual kids from our current time be like if they were x-men sidekicks what would gen z x-men be like and that is interesting while at the same time a little worrisome because um i'm not sure exactly what they're hoping to accomplish with this um it makes a little bit of sense why the characters the original characters uh were placed on the original teaser that being angel cyclops uh gene gray nightcrawler and gambit again but um, these characters that are on the new release of the cover uh, definitely have like chimera style looking uh, powers, each of them exhibiting the same powers as their counterparts on the previous cover. But I'm interested to see what sidekicks, because we've, I guess we've never really seen, you know, what if the X-Men had sidekicks? Like we've gotten characters like the New Mutants, teams like that. Um, but yeah, I'm interested. I'm interested to see what they do with it. I don't know if it's going to be a book that I'm going to be picking up right now. My X-Men uh, my X-Men pull list is pretty much the main X-Men book in Marauders. Uh, but I'm interested. I'm interested to see what they do with it. So hopping on over to Miscellaneous now. Um, KH3, Kingdom Hearts 3, it's one and only. It's giant DLC is releasing this week as of this recording. It's going to be releasing on... Um, January 24th, this Friday, as of this recording, once again. Um, and I'm excited for it. I'm really excited. It's going to be adding a load of new stuff. Um, 
an extra episode, a secret boss, uh, two new Keyblades, and I guess new is relative because they're actually old Keyblades, the Oathkeeper and the Oblivion, my two favorite Keyblades in the entire franchise, and a ton of bug fixes, patches, and stuff like that, so I'm really excited. It's looking really, really good, and I can't wait to get my hands on it. Um, in not as great news, uh, Cyberpunk 2077 has been delayed. Uh, just like Avengers before it, it is uh, being delayed from its initial release date and joining Avengers in September. This one releasing a week later on September 17th. So um, it's sad for fans of uh, of Cyberpunk, uh, CD Projekt Red, and them, but they've said through their press release and stuff that they want to make sure that it's as as best as it can be uh there's rumors right now that the reason for the uh delay was because the optimization wasn't up to par and it wasn't running very well on consoles but this happens with games a lot from what i understand so i don't think it's anything to be concerned about it sucks that we have to wait a few extra months but uh if it means like i said with uh when avengers was delayed if it means that we get a better more polished game then i'm all for it so that's it for miscellaneous news now we jump into tv news and there's a lot to talk about so i'm going to start off with one of the uh one of the biggest ones which is uh marvel tv and Hulu have unveiled their cast for the Modoc animated series. We've known this has been coming for a little while now. Uh, the Marvel and Hulu uh, partnership has been a little shaky, especially with the quiet cancellations of uh, Hellstrom and uh, Ghost Rider. I don't know if Hellstrom's still being made. There was a cast list announced and everything, but we haven't gotten any uh, news after that. But this one seems to be more positive. Uh, they announced the initial cast for the show. It's going to be an animated adventure focusing exclusively on the mental organism designed only for killing. And I'm pretty excited about this cast. So I'm going to talk about each cast member. I'm going to uh, list them and then also uh, read off the character bio that Marvel has released with each one. Starting with our, uh, our main event player, Patton Oswalt is going to be playing Modoc. I'm really excited about this. I love Patton Oswalt. Um, and his bio reads as thus. After being ousted from both his evil organization and his family, supervillain Modoc must reinvent himself if he ever wants the chance to win back the things in his life that are most important. Outside of conquering the world, that is. Modoc is about to find out that superheroes are nothing compared to his newest challenge, a midlife crisis. So this looks like it's going to be one of those off-the-wall um, comedies, kind of in the same vein as Harley Quinn, which has been great so far. And if it's anything like that, I kind of doubt it with the Marvel brand, but you never know. Uh, we'll see. Next up, we have Amy Garcia as Jody. Uh, Amy Garcia has been on shows like Lucifer, El Chicano, and Dexter. And her bio reads... Jody, Modoc's wife and mother to his children, has had a late-in-life awakening. Excited to pursue her mommy blog turned lifestyle brand empire and discover who she is as an independent woman in her 40s. There are just too many things to do in this world and not enough time to waste being held back by negativity. And unfortunately for Modoc, the thing weighing her down the most is him. So, Amy Garcia is going to be playing Jody, his wife. 
sounds interesting. Uh, we don't really have a basis for that, so I'm looking forward to it. Really excited about this next one. This is Ben Schwartz as Lou. Uh, ben Schwartz has been on uh, House of Lies, but I think he's most well known for his uh, his role in Parks and Rec. Love him. He's so good on that show. He's he's really he's good in everything he's been in. Uh, if we're talking animation, he's also recently voiced. Uh, one, I can't remember which one of the the ducklings it is, but in uh, Ducktales, he's either Huey, Dewey, or Louie. He's one of them. But uh, his character bio reads. To be honest, Modoc doesn't really get his 12-year-old son, Lou. Not athletic enough to be a jock, not smart enough to be a nerd. Lou is, well, Lou, a kid who clearly marches to the beat of his own drum. Lou's lack of friends, ambition, and hygiene is a constant worry for Modoc, who often projects his own insecurities onto his overly confident son. So Lou is uh, Modoc's son, um, again, New ground for the character. I'm interested. Uh, I'm also really excited about this one. Uh, Melissa Fumero as Melissa. Uh, Melissa Fumero is uh, most well-known for her role on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Big fan of hers. She is hilarious. So uh, let's see who she's playing. She's playing a girl named Melissa. Even with her father's features, 17-year-old Melissa was has risen the ranks to become the Heathers-like queen bee of her school and a star in the world of teen figure skating. Every popular kid either wants to date her or avoid her terrifying wrath, but for all of her success, Melissa secretly yearns for her father's approval. Now, they don't explicitly say this, but I'm assuming that that means that Melissa is Modoc's daughter, so uh, Ben Schwartz and Melissa Fumero are playing uh Patton Oswalt's kids basically. So um that sounds interesting. And I'm interested in the um uh even with her father's features, if she's gonna be like a uh, grotesque like Modoc looking uh popular girl. Uh it should be fun. Next up we have Wendy McClendon Covey as Monica Rappaccini. Uh Wendy has been on the Goldbergs and uh she's I'm not sure who she's playing, so let's dive into the uh, the synopsis. Monica is a brilliant mad scientist at AIM and MODOK's rival at work. Oh, okay, she's going to be the rival. Clearly more competent and qualified than MODOK, Monica believes she should be running the organization. After Grumble acquires AIM, Monica relishes in MODOK's suffering until the new management begins to infringe on her ungodly experiments. With a common enemy in Austin, MODOK and Monica are finally able to put aside their differences and work together when they aren't constantly betraying each other. So I love the idea of these two kind of like working both with each other and against each other. Every episode could be like a, you betrayed me now you betrayed me. So, um, that sounds interesting. Uh, Beck Bennett is going to be playing Austin Vandersleet. Beck Bennett is mostly well known for, uh, Saturday night live, but he's also, also been on, uh, DuckTales. So he's got a great voice. Really excited for him. Uh, let's dive into his character bio. After Modoc's evil organization AIM is run into the ground, he's forced to sell it to Silicon Valley tech giant Grumble. Grumble sends slick 20-something Austin as a, quote, post-merger integration consultant and Modoc's new boss. Though Modoc wishes he could just zap Austin to the negative zone, Modoc must find new solutions to confront Austin's corporate jargon speak and frequent mandatory HR meetings if he's ever going to reclaim AIM from Austin's grip. So it looks like he's going to be the de facto villain 
uh, classic uh, tech know-it-all young kid millennial um i'm interested to see what they do with him because he's really really good uh next up we have john daly as the super adaptoid yes i love the super adaptoid um john daly is is mostly known for the Kroll show and curb your enthusiasm and the super adaptoid is a snarky android with ambitions to live feel and create but is instead forced to spend his days massaging the hover chair sores on his creator modok's scalp though the adaptoid dreams of overriding his programming and turning on modok there's also a begrudging friendship between these two okay that sounds really interesting because the super adaptoid is basically like um uh what's his dc equivalent uh amazo uh where he can basically uh copy other superheroes abilities and he's never been given any kind of characterization so making him this like uh pinocchio like i want to be a real boy um could be really really funny and then finally we have sam richardson as gary sam richardson is most well known for his role on veep and gary is a henchman or quote-unquote beekeeper at AIM who is fiercely loyal to his boss, Modok, even if Modok struggles to remember his name. As Modok continues to get demoted within his own organization, Gary is there by his side, always offering his help and unshakable optimism whether Modok wants it or not. So it looks like he's going to be uh, Bob the Hydra agent for... <laughs> uh aim i'm excited i hope i hope he has a rivalry with bob i would love that if um he just like runs into him sometimes in the show that would be really funny uh but yeah so that's your cast for modok uh lots of great comedy chops i'm really excited especially for like ben schwartz Patton oswalt and i just it's looking really good so really excited about that on uh a less exciting note uh there's apparently some drama going on with the kenobi show behind the scenes uh kenobi is supposed to be the next uh star wars story that's going to be released as a series on um on disney plus and there's no confirmation on this This is all all kind of uh rumor hearsay and speculation but right now there is apparently drama going on between disney and ewan mcgregor uh regarding the show so uh, that makes me nervous i really want this to happen especially after how well done mandalorian was um I'm, I'm really hoping that this doesn't amount to anything but in more exciting news when it comes to star wars and disney plus we got a trailer a i would say probably the final trailer for the final season of the clone wars as well as a release date it is going to be dropping on disney plus on february 21st and from what i can tell it's going to take the same um uh same release schedule as mandalorian so each episode is going to be released week to week so that could be an interesting uh topic for the weekly review hint hint on a, a later thing we're going to talk about but the trailer looks fantastic. Um, this is probably the best these Clone Wars animation has ever looked. I'm currently re-watching the Clone Wars series, the original uh, six seasons in the ultimate order. I'm using quotations for podcast listeners. Um, the uh, ultimate 
episode order I found on Reddit because I wanted to make sure I was watching them all in order. But uh, it's it just it reminds me of how good that show was. It's so freaking good. So I'm trying and hoping that I'll be able to finish up with the show uh, by the time the new season drops. I'm about uh halfway through season three so i think i can make it but we'll have to see but it looks fantastic the animation looks great uh anakin and obi-wan are just destroying droids left and right and it ends with a really uh interesting one-on-one duel between darth maul and ahsoka i have no idea what's going to happen but i'm excited for it so really looking forward to that uh we also got a release of possible concept art for the Tyler Hoechlin Superman show. Um, We have heard rumors that he was going to get a new suit for the new show. And from this initial concept art, I'm interested. I think there's a lot of tweaks that need to be made to it, uh, specifically to this like huge, huge, ridiculous looking clunky uh, belt that's trying to incorporate both red and yellow. Um, I have no problem with the current belt he's using, but this one looks like it's trying to give vibes towards like the red trunks look. But I don't need that to be as clunky as it is. And I also think that the cape attachments, they should just do the same thing that they did for Routh's suit uh, in Crisis, and they'll be golden. Uh, Also, a quick bit of news that's currently... uh, Rumors, so take this with a grain of salt. Uh, it's rumored right now that Brandon Routh might actually be getting his own Superman show, whether that's going to be on the CW or more likely on HBO Max. Um, I honestly think that we could easily just recast him as the Superman in the films, but that's just me. Um, but I'm down for it. I'm worried that we might be getting bogged down with too much uh, super people, but... I absolutely loved what uh, what he did as the Kingdom Come slash Returns Superman in Crisis, and I'm down to see more of him. And then finally, we f- we got our very first look at the U.S. agent from Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which is going to be dropping in August, and it looks great, man. It looks really good. My only note is that I wish that the suit had less uh, navy and more black to kind of harken back to the original uh, comics. But it looks great. It really... Oh, man. I'm looking at the photos right now. They look really good. He looks awkward, which I love, if that's a character choice. Like, comparing his posture to, like, uh, Chris Evans when he was wearing the suit. Looks great. And the most interesting part about him is that he's currently in these photos he's wielding sam's shield so part of me can already kind of see where the show's gonna go like pretty much how i expected it to but i'm excited about it my current predictions um sam has been given the shield by steve but is unsure about becoming the new captain america the government seizes the shield from sam uh because they don't think that the world is ready for an african-american captain america so they hire on um walker to become the u.s agent uh bucky and sam find out there's some kind of conspiracy some darker play at work uh have to end up fighting u.s agent and then sam becomes uh captain america at the end of the show that's just kind of how i expect it to go if it 
takes twists and turns, I'm all for it. But also, if it doesn't, if it goes by that structure, I'm okay with that too. I think this show is going to be incredibly relevant. I think it's going to be um, really interesting dealing with the idea of can the American public and kind of really the audience around the world uh, as a whole accept an African-American super or an African-American Captain America. Um, We'll just have to see. I think this is going to be an incredible series. And even though uh, we do have um, Black Widow coming out this year, this is going to be my real, the one I'm really looking forward to. Um, So we'll see. We'll see what happens when it comes to uh, how Phase 4 gets kicked off. So that is it for the news. Like I said, a lot of news to talk about uh, today, but uh, it is now time. We're going to hop over to the main course of this episode, the entree, if you will, which is ranking the top five fights in Dragon Ball Z. I have been a fan of Dragon Ball since as long as I can remember. Um, I remember growing up with the series back when it was uh, showing on Toonami. Uh, I even remember the ocean dub, the original uh, American dub to most fans where um, Brian Drummond was Vegeta. Uh, I just, I have been a fan of this series, this anime, this manga all of it for pretty much my entire life and i've watched as the series has evolved throughout the years and it's really interesting looking back because by the time that i was being introduced to the show in america in the u.s um the show had already wrapped up i believe even uh, dragon ball gt had wrapped up the one we never speak of um had wrapped up in japan so we were all kind of getting this uh delayed experience when it came to this show but i distinctly remember a lot of it shaping uh my childhood growing up just as much as comics did uh i remember distinctly uh the goku versus frieza battle going on for weeks and weeks and having to tune in every single week to see the newest episode and i remember the conclusion the final episode came out the same night that uh pokemon the first movie was being released in theaters and my dad was basically telling me you got to pick one and unfortunately i was so wanting to see the movie that uh we went and saw the movie and what i didn't realize when we got home after seeing the movie was that he had recorded the episode on vhs so i got i got to do both so um thanks dad for that uh but i have grown up with dragon ball i've watched it evolve um from dragon ball dragon ball z dragon ball gt dragon ball z kai or i guess dragon ball kai for those of you who are purists uh and into dragon ball super i am still waiting for um dragon ball super to kind of wrap up its dub because that's how i prefer to watch dragon ball i absolutely get the um the appeal of watching it sub first of all you don't get spoiled uh as most of dragon ball super has already been spoiled for me but um 
I was a dub kid growing up, so I will remain a dub man, as I guess is the word, uh, <laughs> as I go along. But um, I have had a deep set love for this series and this uh, franchise for a very long time, and I have been waiting to do an episode on Dragon Ball Z. I almost did one. I was very close to doing it. I almost did one last year when uh, Dragon Ball Super Broly, the movie, came out, but I didn't really know what I wanted to talk about, and I didn't have the time. It was kind of a last-minute thing. But with the release of Dragon Ball Z Kakarot on consoles and PC around the world, I figured now would be just as good a time as any to talk about one of my favorite anime growing up. And today, we are going to be... Um, ranking some fights uh fights and uh, martial arts has always been a focus of dragon ball all the way through uh every single series whether it's dragon ball dragon ball z or beyond and uh today we are going to be ranking dragon ball z fights my top five my personal top five list on dragon ball z fights so we a couple ground rules here before we get into the list um this is just going to be Dragon Ball Z. So no Dragon Ball, no GT, no Super. Um, unfortunately, Dragon Ball Super Broly will not be on this list anywhere, even though the fights in it are spectacular. So, however, that means that anything with the Dragon Ball Z name on it is on the board. Any of the movies, any of the specials, any of the... Um, uh, special episodes any of the shorts are on the table and i took a look at all of them i re-looked at some of the most iconic fights of the series um re-watched some episodes uh checked out a couple of the movies that i was shaky on and i believe for me i have compiled the best list that i can uh, i'm also judging these fights on a how well they used their time B, on how entertaining the fight is. If it's just like a, a shit stomp and like it's a one-sided like uh, squash match, I'm probably not going to rank it on this list. Um, and C, really what it means to the series as a whole. Like what does it mean for the series? Uh, what is it, what kind of impact does it have? So those are kind of my three uh um, my kind of three uh, requirements, my three um, variables when I was looking at all these fights. And also, I mean, how much I enjoyed it. How visually appealing is it? How much do I like seeing it? How, uh, how rewatchable is it? And that's really what a lot of this comes down to. So uh, real quick, just before I get into the list, uh, I just want to make sure I have this uh, disclaimer out there. This is my personal list. Uh, if you disagree, feel free to let me know whether it's on uh, social media, either Instagram or Twitter at GeeksplainedPod. That's at GeeksplainedPod. Or through email, because I'm an old man, I still read emails to geeksplained at gmail.com. Share share with me your list. I would love to hear about them. Uh, whether you think my list is totally wrong, uh, what you would switch out, how you would rank these fights, I want to hear about it and I want to talk to you guys about it. So with all of that out of the way, let's talk about my top five fights in all of Dragon Ball Z. So first off, at uh, number five, we have a fight that... Uh, 
is pretty special and and I think is kind of overlooked, especially as the series has gone on and evolved. Um, and I will say that it is the one fight on this list that doesn't involve Goku whatsoever. Uh, it might be a spoiler that the rest of these fights uh, all center around Goku, but he's the main character, so of course they would. Uh, so... But this fight, I think, is really special, and one of the reasons it makes it special is because it doesn't feature Goku whatsoever. And that is Piccolo versus Android 17 during the Cell arc. Um, I am one of the people who still thinks that the Android slash Cell arc is the height of the series. It's the best it's ever been. Um, whether it comes to character design, art, writing, um, some of the most explosive and memorable parts of the series happen in this saga and that includes really kind of piccolo's swan song for the series uh piccolo started off as a really important character uh going into dragon ball z he kind of capped off the last big fight of dragon ball beforehand and throughout z he really kind of fades in the background and becomes uh more or less a uh a side character as the series becomes more and more focused focused on Saiyans, their offspring, and really kind of separating themselves from really every other race in the show, um, slash manga. But uh, this fight, really, it serves as Piccolo's final fight in the series. Uh, he has some, like, physical confrontations as the series, as we go into, like, the Boo Saga and everything, but nothing to this level. Uh, nothing where you're just like, oh man, Piccolo's like center stage and this fight is about him. And this was really the last time that we got to see that. He had just fused with Kami, um, gotten a huge power boost, putting him on Super Saiyan level. And he was going up against, up until this point, the main uh, antagonists of the saga, which were the androids. Android 16, 17, and 18. And specifically, he fights Android 17 when the androids show up to Kame House looking for Goku. Uh, Goku is currently um, out of commission, technically, because he's up with the other Saiyans on the lookout using the hyperbolic time chamber. It's, it's really interesting to me because a lot of times, and especially in Dragon Ball Z, you would see the trope where it's like, all right, guys, let's hold off this big bad guy who's going to thrash us all until Goku gets here. And that, you know, that trope is used at least half a dozen times over the course of the show. But this is one of the one is one of the few times that that trope is thrown out the window, because uh, at this point, uh, Vegeta and Trunks are in the hyperbolic time chamber training and Gohan and Goku are next in line to go in so they have to wait for uh, Vegeta and Trunks to come out of the chamber so that they can jump right in so that there's no time to lose and they can become strong enough to defeat the androids and the encroaching cell who is becoming stronger by the day uh, so they aren't coming to save him this is going to be Piccolo up against Android 17 who absolutely stomped him and the other Z fighters earlier in the uh, earlier in the season and Man, this is a sight to behold. You know, you want to talk about back and forth. So one of the big criteria that I put on this list was how back and forth is this? How even is the fight? And this one is just spectacular. Uh, Piccolo is all out going here. The fight choreography is fantastic. I also love how snarky Android 17 was. I will let you in on a little secret. Android 17 might is probably one of my top five characters in the show. And this was before... 
um, Dragon Ball Super. Uh, but I love that character. I love the trio of Android 16, 17, and 18. And 17 fighting Piccolo was just such a treat uh, because we really hadn't seen the androids kind of go all out at this point. They'd really just kind of stomped everybody they'd run across. And to find somebody who could actually uh, go toe-to-toe with Android 17 was really cool. This also showed the debut of two of Piccolo's most famous uh, techniques, that being the light grenade, which I freaking love. It is the most underappreciated technique that Piccolo has, is this light grenade. And it is one of the most spectacular looking uh, beam attacks in the entire series. But what most people remember uh, this fight for and what most people associate with this fight is the hell zone grenade so it's uh, at one point piccolo you know starts shooting blasts up and around 17 clearly missing him uh, 17 doesn't get it until it's too late he looks around he realizes all the blasts have stopped in midair and are hovering around him like a minefield Piccolo shouts out Hellzone Grenade, brings them all in the middle, and uh, would probably have killed Android 17 if he hadn't used a well-placed barrier. It's one of the coolest uh, techniques that we see in the show. It's really not uh, precedented by anything. Uh, We've seen, you know, blasts change direction and be controlled before. A couple techniques spring to mind, like Yamcha's Spirit Ball or... um, What's it called? Uh, Frieza's, I think they call them Death Slicers, but they're basically, they're destructive discs. But um, this was really cool. Uh, We also got to see 17 bust out his barrier. We got to see the two of them punching each other so hard that you got to see the fists coming out of each other's backs. Um, But the reason that it isn't higher on the list for me is because it really has a non-ending. The fight isn't able to come to a satisfying conclusion because Cell shows up. He is able to track uh, Piccolo's power level because he is expending as much energy as he possibly can to go toe-to-toe with 17. And unfortunately, that means that the fight then pretty quickly shifts to Piccolo and 17 versus uh, Cell. Piccolo is taken off the board, and 17 is pretty quickly um, absorbed following that. But just for kind of being the last hurrah for Piccolo and also uh, being one of the most uh, even and entertaining fights to watch, it absolutely merits its place on this list. So that is my number five. At number four, we have Goku and Piccolo versus... I'm smacking the mic here. uh, Goku and Piccolo versus Raditz. And I'm going to put something out here. This might be a hot take. Um, But I am going to make the... um, the declaration that this fight, Goku and Piccolo versus Raditz, is the most important fight in the entire series. The entire series of Dragon Ball. This is the most important fight in the entire series. Let me tell you why. First off, Raditz is the biggest missed opportunity with a character ever. I mean, the entire series goes on and we starts to put this big focus on Goku, his family. We uh, get to see his, the adventures of his sons later on down the line. The uh, the adventures of his father has merited two, uh, two different TV specials as well as being completely rewritten for the latest uh, Dragon Ball Super movie. But his brother, his blood relative, his older brother, who had to suffer through all of the injustices that Vegeta had with none of the privilege, gets this one saga, and that's it. 
He is the opening player for the Saiyan saga and is never brought up or revisited again. Um, it's a sh- it's a shame. It's a real it, it is a crime that they never did anything with him, especially with his introduction, because with his introduction, this is the at the very beginning of Dragon Ball Z. Up until this point, uh, Goku has been a monkey boy with um, no real explanation on why he has a tail, why he turns into a giant ape. It's just been a fun action-adventure romp that focuses on martial arts. And the arrival of Raditz brings the sci-fi elements. Granted, it also flagrantly... V- rips off the Superman story of uh, Goku being sent away from a planet just as it's destroyed and coming to Earth and getting all this power. But um, Raditz, the arrival of Raditz, basically the reveal that, oh yeah, you're an alien and you were sent here to destroy the planet. You hit your head as a as a toddler, and so that's why you don't remember anything. Uh, it's a great reveal, and it really kicks off the entire series, even more so than... Like the Saiyan, the Saiyan saga proper with Vegeta and Nappa, uh, more so than the Frieza saga. Um, Raditz's arrival really kicks off everything that we know about Dragon Ball Z today. He can fly, he shoots blasts, he has Saiyan armor, um, and he is the first big fight in the series. This also brings together Goku and Piccolo, who up until this point have been mortal enemies. Uh, Piccolo trying to avenge the death of his father, question mark, slash previous life, since he's technically the same character, just reborn. It's complicated. Um, but this is the first time that really the... Um, the fate of the planet is on the line before we've had like oh you know world domination but we've never had this had the stakes be hey if you lose this fight earth is going to be destroyed so this is immediately stakes are high um he's also captured goku's son uh so that immediately gives uh personal um uh, personal investment for Goku and us as the audience, and it is the first time that Goku and Piccolo work together as a team. Uh, disregarding the non-canon or kind of semi-canon uh, Dead Zone film, uh, Goku and Piccolo work well together. And what I really like about this fight is that you know that either one of them on their own would get nowhere close to beating Raditz. And even with the two of them together, are just barely able to hold their own. So they need to be strategic. You see uh, fighting going on that is like, okay, we got a plan, this is our plan, you're going to go after him, I'm going to charge this beam. We have to be strategic about this. You know, at a certain point, uh, Raditz blasts off Piccolo's arm. Uh, we saw that beforehand in uh, the original Dragon Ball series, he had been able to grow back his arm, but it was still like a, is this like a one-time thing? Can he re- regrow his arm and his limbs back indefinitely? What's going on with that? Um, and we also saw, you know, some pretty spectacular fight choreography from this. The speed at which they're fighting is fantastic. This is the height of fighting if you take into account the original Dragon Ball. Um, This is also a fight that has a definitive ending, which I love. Uh, I love fights that actually have a decisive finish, and this one has the most decisive finish um, 
that they've ever really had so far up to this point where Goku has to sacrifice himself. This is also the fight where they debut the special beam cannon, which I love. Um, and is one of the most uh, recognizable and fan favorite techniques in the entire series. Uh, it's just a fantastic uh, opening salvo for the show. The reason that it isn't higher for me on this list is because of uh, mainly just the repeated uh got your tail please let me go okay thing that happens at least twice in this fight um however that is kind of counterbalanced with this being the first time that we really get to see uh gohan lose his basically loses shit and uses hulk his hulk strength his hulk power to deal a pretty uh serious and devastating blow to raditz uh this fight also has the ramifications of bringing uh, Vegeta and Nappa to Earth. So once again, I think it's the most important fight in the series. It kicks off all of the events that follow. Without this fight, without this encounter, the rest of the series wouldn't have happened. So that is why it, I think, just for that alone, along with the incredible choreography, uh, deserves its place as number four on this list. Now on number three, this one was really hard to place. Uh, but it ended up at the number three spot for a couple factors that we're going to get into. And that is Goku versus Frieza. Goku versus Frieza is at number three. And for a lot of people, they would argue it being at number one. And I get that. I absolutely get that. Um, for a lot of people, this is the height of Dragon Ball. Goku versus Frieza is peak Dragon Ball. It's what everyone goes to when they think about the series. Uh, Frieza is probably the most recognizable Dragon Ball villain of all time. And going up against the main character at the conclusion of probably the uh, most experimental saga that they ever did, uh, it, it's a recipe for greatness. The reason that it's not higher on the list is that it is so freaking long um i mean we could really get into the whole five minutes before the earth explodes thing i'm not gonna get into that because it's been beaten to death but uh the fact that after that announcement the fight stretches to i believe like at least 10 to 15 more episodes is just ridiculous um the fight also has a lot of padding um, the fight starts when Goku shows up after Frieza absolutely curb stomps uh, Vegeta into the ground. Uh, it goes through Goku versus Frieza fighting one-on-one -on -one where Frieza is kind of more or less toying with Goku. Um, however, this is probably one of the most exciting parts of the fight when Goku, realizing that there is a definite uh, imbalance to their power levels, has to start getting strategic with his environment, using his little underwater uh, Kamehameha's to shoot them up to get a Frieza's attention, uh, realizing that uh, Frieza can't sense power level, so he obscures Frieza's uh, vision. Really smart and tactical fighting, which I don't think is used enough in the series. Uh, then it rolls into, oh, Goku's got to charge the spirit bomb. Let's throw Krillin, Gohan, and Piccolo at Frieza in a completely losing effort until he can charge it. That is, um, once again, a trope that gets used really often and almost too often. So that part isn't as exciting. Uh, but we do get 
the transformation Goku turning Super Saiyan for the very first time. This was also a benchmark, a landmark um, occasion in Dragon Ball history. The um, I would say the course of Dragon Ball Z really shifted after this because after this when it came to super saiyan like oh we got to look at what is being a super saiyan mean you know is there a way to push beyond it what do we do when we get to super saiyan 2 and beyond that um and then the fight really again becomes a another curb stomp between uh super saiyan goku and frieza who is woefully outmatched right up until uh frieza busts out his 100 form and then it really becomes a bit more exciting uh with the planet namek you know on the verge of destruction all of the uh set pieces uh the dragon the multiple uh dragon ball wishes getting revived all the way up until goku finally outsmarts frieza once again and is able to defeat him um again a decisive victory for goku that kind of ends off where um the planet explodes possibly with goku and frieza on it um it's a great fight. It's one of the most uh, well-known fights of the series, and I think that alone warrants it on the list. But for me, again, the reason that it isn't as uh, as it, the reason it isn't higher on the list is because it, it it just drags. It really, really drags. If they had condensed it, it would have been a much stronger fight. And I think if the back half was as strong as the front half we really would have had something there. So that is why it rests at number three. At number two, we have the newest fight on the list, which is Goku versus Beerus. Now, before you send your pitchforks at me, this fight happened in the film Dragon Ball Z Battle of Gods. Regardless of the fact that this entire film was recounted in Dragon Ball Super, the film where this original fight happens, and the superior version of the fight, might I add, with animation, pacing, and all of that, happened in a Dragon Ball Z movie, so it is on the board, and it is my number two. Um, this fight is spectacular. Everything that the Frieza fight isn't, this fight is. It is condensed, it is succinct, it is explosive, it is fun, it is well-paced, even has some comedy in it as well. It is so well done. Uh, from the transformation to Super Saiyan God, the music that kicks in, um, Flo's hero is a jam that I can put on at any time and just get just freaking pumped. Um, but the choreography is spectacular here. It really is. Uh, there's a moment where they are up above the clouds going faster than the camera can actually keep up with. And you don't get a whole lot of, um, of that feeling of these guys are moving faster than the eye can see in the show. Even though they will take any opportunity to be like, oh, they're moving so fast. Why can't we see them? Oh, their power levels are too high. We never really get that feeling except for a couple different occasions. Uh, this being one of them. Another I can think off the top of my head was during the Goku versus Cell fight, which I would say probably is like number six on this list. Um, but it is so cool watching them sail through the air. Um, the 
also the set pieces fighting in the sky fighting in these caves fighting through mountains fighting in the atmosphere like the set design is fantastic the use of the set is great their like i said their banter through it as well is great the dialogue um a lot of people a lot of people, myself included, watching this fight initially when uh, Goku initially loses his Super Saiyan God form because his body can't sustain it. It seems like, okay, it's about to turn to a real shit stomp, but not so because uh, normal form Goku actually holds his own and is, again, hearkening back to that fight with Frieza where he starts fighting smarter and fighting more tactical like he should at this point. Goku, regardless of the modern conception, is a clever fighter and so that is on full display here and I really enjoy that. And then we get the fight up in the atmosphere where Goku is back into his Super Saiyan 1 form because his body can't sustain it. Beerus uses this giant, you know, miniature sun essentially and throws it to the earth about to destroy it. Goku taps into the Super Saiyan God form once again on his own and is able to destroy the beam, but it pretty much burns through the rest of his energy and leaves him completely vulnerable for Beerus to destroy. And this uh, this fight, beyond it being explosive, beyond it being fun, beyond it being exciting, is a great use of the themes of Dragon Ball. Um, if I had included the original Dragon Ball series, it might not have been on the, uh, on the list, but the initial fight from the very first tournament arc in Dragon Ball between uh, Goku and Jackie Chun which is Master Oshi in disguise, um, had such a great theme with it. The whole reason that Master Oshi was fighting him was to show Goku that there was still um, others who would be stronger out there. His worry if Goku won the tournament would be was that uh, Goku would essentially be like, okay, I've reached my peak. I don't need to get stronger. There's nothing else I need to worry about, which inherently goes against the, um, the thesis of the series and really the ideology of Goku and martial arts in general. So this fight kind of speaks to that original, uh, that original theme in that Beerus doesn't kill Goku out right after this. Uh, he's basically there to just show Goku like, yeah, you may have defeated Boo, you may have defeated Cell, you may have defeated Frieza, uh, you may have gotten Super Saiyan 3 and all this stuff, but there is so much more out there. There are other universes out there, and you are going to have to keep getting stronger. And I love that theme because, again, that goes to the core, uh, the central core of the character that Goku has. So I dig this fight. This is also what reignited the flame for uh, Dragon Ball. It was shortly after this that they announced that Dragon Ball Super was going to be a thing, uh, as well as announcing the Resurrection F film, uh, which is not as good as this film, not even close. But... This film really does a great job in just giving you everything you love about Dragon Ball Z and Dragon Ball in general. And this fight is one of the most explosive, one of the most entertaining, and one of the most satisfying fights that the series ever put on. So that is my number two. But it is not number one. It's not the best fight in Dragon Ball Z. And even though it's probably the obvious answer, especially since uh, Goku vs. Frieza is further down this list, um, it's the right answer. And the greatest Dragon Ball Z fight of all time, for me, is Goku vs. Vegeta in the Saiyan Saga. Um, 
I think there's a lot of people who would probably say their fight in the Boo Saga, uh, Super Saiyan 2 Goku versus Majin Vegeta, is just as exciting. I disagree. Um, just like the Raditz fight, this was up until that point the most explosive and entertaining and visually appealing fight of the entire series so far uh this is also one of the few group fights because eventually after uh the initial goku versus vegeta fight where vegeta eventually becomes a giant ape and crushes goku's legs um it becomes a team fight when Gohan, Krillin, and Yajirobe show up to try and fight him. And then after they're able to turn him back, Yajirobe cutting off his tail, it becomes a two-on-one fight between Krillin and Gohan versus Vegeta. And it is a knockdown, drag-out brawl because all of them are spent. Nobody knows what to do. There's a great spirit bomb spot uh, back when the spirit bomb was something that didn't kill people somehow even though you'd get a direct hit off of it um but i really enjoy it the best part of the fight is the opening part of the fight though the one-on-one battle between goku and vegeta in the rocky terrain the two of them going at it for the very first time uh goku having just completely squash nappa and vegeta showing how ruthless he is by throwing nappa into the air and killing him for being so weak the two of them go at it and there is a clear disparity between goku and vegeta's abilities uh vegeta's caught off guard by how quick goku is but vegeta is just so much stronger and really outmatches goku until he busts out the kaioken and the kaioken I'm going to say this definitively, is probably my favorite technique in all of Dragon Ball. It's probably my favorite um, transformation in all of Dragon Ball. It's arguable. Uh, I think that the uh, Super Saiyan God form is also really exciting. But that kind of has to do with the fact that it reminds me so much of Kaioken. Um, Kaioken is just an incredible technique. It is, you know, putting all of your body and your life and your really your health on the line just so that you can get a temporary power boost that might not even work and that's what really goes into this fight goku uses his kaioken is able to surprise vegeta um but as vegeta begins to adapt like the warrior prodigy he is goku has to start upping the multiplier so go so goku starts going kaioken times two times three times five and then we finally get probably the most famous image in all of dragon ball the very first ever beam struggle now again we're talking about um the placement of of uh this fight in the history of dragon ball when it came to my criteria this is the most famous fight in all of dragon ball period um everything that comes after this is you know probably more well animated probably um has larger stakes but this fight really is the most exciting and the most evenly matched that this that this series really ever gets i absolutely adore this fight the colors used when it comes to the kamehameha versus the gallic gun is incredible uh the beat i mean the beam struggle just in general is fantastic goku having to go kaioken times 10 to even win that is just so so good um 
also taking into account you know the assist from vegeta or from uh gohan and krillin and yadrobi as well after this uh to gohan turning into a giant ape himself and delivering the final blow to vegeta and sending him skimpering off back to frieza is just so well done and is a great finale to this first big arc and also you know gives us a goal going into the next one with the um with the intent to go to Namek to bring back all the friends they lost in this fight. So it's just a spectacular fight. It's so fun to watch. The choreography is so great here as well. Uh, fight choreography is something that as the series would go on, they'd start to kind of lose uh, for the most part in kind of in a way trading that for more bombastic uh, beam attacks and more screaming and power-ups uh, this was the one that really focused on the martial arts of it all and I really enjoy it and that is why it is my favorite and the best fight in Dragon Ball Z so to recap at number five we have Piccolo versus Android 17 uh, at number four we have Goku and Piccolo versus uh, Raditz at number three we have Goku versus Frieza at number two we have Goku versus Beerus and at number one we have the original bout between Goku and Vegeta so that's it that is uh, the main course for today my ranking for the greatest fights in Dragon Ball Z once again uh, to anyone listening if you have a f- have a ranking that differs from mine feel free to send it over to me uh we can discuss i love having discussions like this with you guys um and i think that really uh the best part about dragon ball is being able to talk about it with other fans uh sharing in our fandom being able to talk about the memories we have with it really is the reason that it has stuck around for so long and uh when it comes to the release of Dragon Ball Z Kakarot, uh, I haven't played it yet. I'm really looking forward to it. I've uh, listened to some reviews, and for the most part, they're all pretty positive. Uh, we haven't had a full-on uh, Dragon Ball RPG game in a very long time. The last one that I can really remember is the uh, Legacy of Goku games. I rule out the Xenoverse games because they're more like arena fighters with RPG elements, but this one is boasting full rpg uh i loved the uh legacy of goku series growing up and i think this seems like it can serve as the spiritual successor to that series so overall dragon ball love continues in 2020 and i can't wait to see where it goes as the years goes on so I'm really excited about it. I love talking about it today. Would love to talk about Dragon Ball again more in the future. And I'm just excited to be a Dragon Ball Z fan. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And we are back with Arrow. Arrow's final season, the eighth season. And we are here with the penultimate episode of the entire series. And I think it's interesting that coming back from Crisis last week, um, Arrow isn't technically focused on the fallout from crisis as much as it is um giving us kind of a reboot and springing forward with uh green arrow and the canaries that's the title of this week's episode and it 
is of course the backdoor pilot for that show which is supposed to be kind of a spinoff uh giving us a lot of stuff that we can look at for um what the show might bring if it is ordered um it's and then it's not to say that it doesn't complete or that it completely ignores the crisis uh there's actually a lot that it deals with with the reboot of crisis and how that affects the world at large um the world's changed and it's almost been rebooted in a way uh we pick up with our pov character kind of being laurel which i think is really interesting uh we find out that the episode takes place entirely in 2040 and there's a couple interesting things when it comes to uh, when it comes to this year, uh, having us back in 2040 with the uh, future team Arrow. Uh, there's a couple of characters that I really want to spotlight here. First of all, Bianca Bertinelli. Uh, she's kind of the um, the impetus for this episode happening. She is a uh, wealthy socialite, the uh, daughter, the adopted daughter of the uh, Bertinelli family, and. If that last name sounds familiar to you, it's because she is the daughter of Helena Bertinelli, who is the huntress in the uh, in pretty much every single form of media. And I was interested. I thought there was going to be some kind of big conspiracy going on with her, but she kind of seems like she's just a one-off. Um, but the one of the biggest changes is that uh, in this 2040, this 2040 now... Um, is a direct uh is directly influenced by the events of crisis where a lot of stuff happened and mia now never lived a life without uh without her family uh, and she is a wealthy socialite and is now engaged to jj the son of uh of diggle and lila and jj's a good guy jj's a uh, a good person seemingly at the beginning of this episode and it's really weird uh star city has apparently been at peace for 20 years ever since uh the events of crisis and, and the end of arrow apparently um but it's really interesting seeing this rebooted uh refreshed star city that's at peace isn't dealing with any of the stuff that the original 2040 from our original timeline pre-crisis uh was dealing with the deathstroke gang is pretty much nowhere to be found um and it's really interesting when you take into account that now all of these characters that we uh, kind of followed their journey with, we're talking uh, Mia, we're talking uh, William, we're talking Zoe, we're talking Connor, uh, none of those characters experience the things that we watch. So it's almost like, why were we, why were we watching these characters in the first place? Um, besides just to establish them as characters, as versions that are no longer canon, technically. Um, but it's interesting. I don't know if, um, I mean, obviously William will be a central character in Green Arrow and the Canaries, but I don't know how, uh, I guess how much impact Zoe and Connor will have. I mean, right before Crisis, uh, Zoe died. So I, I'm not sure exactly what it is bringing these characters in. I'm, I'm sure they would get, uh, more screen time going in, but or going into an actual show, but I'm just not sure. Uh, they also kind of traded JJ and Connor when it comes to their, um, 
their personalities, their demeanor, and I wonder if that's because Connor never got adopted by Diggle in this uh, now post-crisis timeline, because as we know now, uh, Diggle has both JJ and Sarah, so unless something catastrophic happens, there might not be a reason for him to adopt Connor, uh, but we don't know. We'll just have to see. Uh, but our two characters that we follow through this episode, I would say even more than Mia, are Laurel and Dinah. Dinah Drake and Laurel Lance are our main characters, and specifically, this is the Laurel from Earth 2. There was some question on whether it was going to be Earth 1 or Earth 2 Laurel, but it seems like it is definitively Earth 2 Laurel. Earth 1 Laurel is dead. I'm assuming maybe not, because um, apparently, according to Dinah, uh, following the funeral of, I'm assuming, Oliver Queen, uh, she woke up in 2040. And there was no, um, there was no, uh, record of her ever existing, nor of the Black Canary ever existing. So, again, Crisis has far-reaching implications, and I'm interested to see what all of these shows look like now, post-Crisis. I haven't caught up with, uh, Legends or... Uh, Supergirl yet but uh, Supergirl apparently is dealing with that so I'm interested to see what they do uh, with this uh, Dinah does is it Dinah or Laurel? It might be Laurel uh, does eventually use some kind of uh, John Jones Martian Manhunter tech to uh, reignite uh, Mia's memories so she now has the memories of both post-crisis and pre-crisis Mia so she's now on board uh, we also got the recurring uh, threat of the Deathstroke gang, but it looks like it's just one Deathstroke mask, and it's uh, it's pretty heavily implied that it was originally JJ, but he ends up being a red herring, and it is Trevor, who is a one-off character, uh, Bianca's ex-boyfriend who captured her for influence? Question mark. But he does uh, make a a claim that he was. Um, serving a higher power and that she will bring the city to its knees. We don't know who she is, um, but we get some inclination on who she could be um, near the end of the episode. Uh, Mia eventually, after kind of struggling with her memories of both pre- and post-crisis, decides to become the Green Arrow again. And even more so than her being the Green Arrow, what I loved was seeing the Canaries in action. I really, really dug watching Laurel and Dinah work together. There's a moment when they're uh, going after this van where both of them are like kicking ass and they take a second and they both use the Canary cry. Freaking loved it. Absolutely freaking loved it. Um, but I, w I, I do have to say that this episode, besides it being a backdoor pilot to a completely different show, uh, it had a different feel than the rest of this season. This season really has been um, about celebrating Arrow, Arrow's past, Arrow's present, and uh, looking forward into Arrow's future. But this kind of felt like its own show, almost. Uh, I think that comes down to a couple factors. First off, uh, the soundtrack. There was a lot of... Um, there was a lot of pop-sounding music, which I was kind of taken aback by. I know this is a CW show, but it felt like it was used more um, uh, more blatantly than it has been in the past, especially on Arrow. Um, 
and then the vibe of the show is overall just a younger vibe uh, with a focus on social media, romance, more like CW-isms, and say what you will about, uh, about Arrow, about Flash, about Supergirl and whatnot. But they have kind... I would say they've moved past a lot of the base CW-isms that you would see in other CW shows like Riverdale, like uh, shows of that kind of uh, vibe. But this show felt a little bit closer to that, so I don't know if that's a vibe that they're going to stick with or if they're going to try and go more towards the more mature uh, stuff that Arrow has been doing and Flash has been slowly getting to. But we'll see. Uh, the episode, I was surprised, actually did end with a cliffhanger. It is setting itself up to be a pilot with a lot of uh, future in peril stuff happening. Uh, the whole impetus for Laurel being there in the first place in 2040, because both of them were pulled from present day, was so that she could prevent the murder of Bianca Bertinelli, because apparently... Uh, she has some like back to the future style newspaper clippings where if Bianca died, then uh, one year later, the city would be in chaos, even though it's been enjoying peace for the last 20 years. Uh, and even though they did prevent Bianca from being killed, uh, Laurel is still showing off a newspaper clipping that is entitled the girl who failed star city and it's clearly showing mia so there is some time travel shenanigans some prophecy stuff going on um we also got to see the memorial for oliver which i thought was a uh, a touching bit of uh of honoring uh, Stephen Amell and Oliver Queen, where they have this big statue of him in the center of Star City. Uh, William and Mia are looking at, you know, the statue, and then we get the reveal that William has been carrying the hosen around that Oliver brought back from uh, from Lian Yu and passed on to uh, Thea and so on and so forth uh, until it got down to him. But the interesting thing is that on the hosen are uh, some symbols that are scrawled and that ends up matching up with a tattoo that trevor the death stroke of this episode had tattooed on him so the she that they were referring to might end up being a queen or a smoke or somebody uh be really interesting if they did like a and like older thea being the main villain i think would be really interesting but i'm not sure if they would go in that direction um but following this, William is captured. Uh, JJ is given the same kind of uh, Martian reboot tech that reminds him that he was the leader of the Deathstroke gang. So he's going to be evil now, even though he's still engaged to Mia. The two of them have a relationship, so they'll be leading a double life both with each other and against each other. So there's a lot of interesting concepts, and the episode overall I thought was good. I would say it was one of the weaker episodes of the season, though, and I don't know how it really gets us ready and kind of sets us up for uh, the finale, which is next week. Next week is the end of Arrow, um, and I don't think that having this episode be so late in the season um, really fits in with the idea that, hey... The show's over next week, so we're going to have the side story happen, but that's just me. That's uh, that's just my opinion on it. Uh, I'm still super psyched for next week. We've gotten some uh, promo material stills showing photos of certain characters coming back. Uh, Roy shows up, and he's got his robot arm, and I'm really excited about that, really digging that. 
Um, so I'm excited. Next week we're going to be doing the finale of Arrow, which means that we need to start talking about what we're going to do with this segment following that. Uh, so I am going to be dropping a poll tonight as of this recording on Wednesday, the 22nd, and I'm going to let that poll roll through until next week's episode. Uh, just asking you guys what you want me to start uh, reviewing for the weekly review. I'm going to have four options here and I'm going to roll through them right now so that you know what's going to be on the poll and you can make an informed decision when you go into that poll on Twitter. Again, at Pod. Uh, first off, Harley Quinn. I've been loving Harley Quinn so far. It's been fantastic and I've been really enjoying it. I would love to talk about it more. Plus, uh, just on a personal side note, I love the intro song that I put together, um, for that one Harley Quinn, uh, weekly review that I did when I was doing wildcard weekly reviews. Um, would love to talk about that. There would be some catch up involved, but I'm totally willing to do that and I have done that in the past. Uh, our second one, Doctor Who. Season uh, season 11 is going on right now, and I have been... Season 11? Season 12? I think it's season 11. Anyway, the current season of Doctor Who I thought has been really strong. Uh, this past week's episode on Nikola Tesla I think has been the strongest episode so far in the season. I absolutely loved it, and I would love to talk about it more. So that is uh, the second option. The third option is the Clone Wars uh, Clone Wars is coming back for its final season, like I said earlier on our news segment on the 21st, so um, that would be uh, the next start. Uh, so let me see here, let me just do the math here. Um, that would put us, since it would be debuting on the 21st, so that would give us one, two, three weeks of wildcard weekly reviews to kind of fill the time between the end of Arrow on the 29th, uh, between the 29th of January and the 21st of uh, February. That would kind of put us in that realm. We'd have three weeks of wildcard reviews before we dove into that because that is also going to be weekly. So that is an option. And then the final option is, uh, is doing another CW show. Um, we have the Flash, we have Supergirl, we have Legends of Tomorrow, which just kicked off this week, uh, coming back for its fifth season. Um, we have Batwoman, we have Black Lightning. I have been catching up on Black Lightning and absolutely freaking loving it. I'm kicking myself for not having watched it sooner because I just blew through season one and I uh, am almost finished with season two and I've absolutely been loving that show. Um, so... If you want me to review another of the CW shows, that will be an option as well. Um, but definitely uh, when you go and vote, if you do end up voting for another CW show, make sure you reply with which CW show you would like me to uh, check out. So uh, those are the four options. Like I said, I'm going to be putting that up on our Twitter at Pod. The poll is going to roll for a week. And I will be... Uh, I'm, Really looking forward to seeing what everybody chooses. So that is going to do it for the weekly review for this week. Once again, tune in next week for the finale of Arrow, as well as the announcement of what we are going to be reviewing next. And for now, let's hop on over to this week's Comics Countdown. Ooh. 
Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is a segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or however you pick up your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. We'll be talking about each book's title and creative team, as well as a brief synopsis of each book. And of course, each synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. If you have a synopsis voice you'd like me to try out for this segment, feel free to request that at Pod on Twitter or Instagram, or through email because i'm an old man i still read emails to geeksplained at gmail.com but before we get into this week's books we got to take a look back at last week with the geeksplained pick of the week of last week and there were a couple comics that i definitely thought were going to take the cake here there were two comics specifically that i had uh neck and neck for this that being flash forward number five and legion of superheroes number three but at the end of the day the comic that really won the week for me was legion of superheroes number three written by brian michael bendis with art by ryan sook as well as some guest pages by travis moore uh this book was great and the main reason that I love this book so much was because of my boy, Mon-El. Mon-El took center stage for a lot of this book, and I absolutely loved it. It was a fantastic book for him. Uh, this is really what the book is supposed to be, fulfilling the uh, the idea that this book has so many characters and so many legion members that it will be constantly doing b and c plots throughout the book along with our main a plot featuring different squads of characters is exactly what the book needs to be essentially an anthology story with all these characters um and i thought that the use of that was really good the different threads the different storylines that we're going through were really well done and did i mention that Monel had a lot to do in this episode or in this issue. So overall, I loved it. The book has been really strong and probably uh, with the exception of maybe uh, Batman Universe has been Bendis' strongest book since he came to DC. And I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with this book. So that was, uh, that was my pick of the week of last week. But that's last week. Let's talk about this week. This week we've got one, two, three, four, seven books here to talk about. Uh, and I gotta say, uh, DC is kind of packing up the week this week. We've got two books from Marvel, five books from DC, so let's hop right into it with our first book, which is Guardians of the Galaxy number one, written by Al Ewing with art by Juan Cabal. Uh, this is the, uh... A fresh number one, a reboot for the uh, for the Guardians of the Galaxy, jumping off of the Donny Cates uh, twelve issue run from last year, um, and it looks interesting. It looks interesting. Juan Cabal is a great artist, and Al Ewing has been churning out some really great stuff for Marvel in recent years. So I'm interested to see what they do with this book. Let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here. Once. They were a team of misfits. Now, they're a family, and they've earned their peace. But the universe is not a peaceful place, and it's only getting worse. The great empires are in turmoil. The rule of law is dead. And amidst the chaos, the gods of Olympus have returned. Harbingers of a new age of war, reborn to burn their mark on the stars themselves. Someone has to guard the galaxy. But who will accept the mission? And will they survive it? So again, this looks really cool. Um, just from the cover, 
we see uh, Star-Lord, we see Rocket, we see Nova, we see Moonstone. Um, I want to say that's Phasar. And then we see Marvel Boy. So that looks like it's going to be our... Um, our team for this book uh again al ewing's great wonka ball's art is fantastic and i'm really looking forward to see what they do with this book next up we have year of the villain hell arisen number two of four this is the uh apex lex versus the batman who laughs book spinning out of the justice league and batman superman books and uh this is villain versus villain this is wrapping up year of the villain with a uh big bombastic series so let's go ahead and just jump into the series that's written by uh, James Tynan IV with art by Steve Epting. Let's jump into the synopsis here. Apex Predator Lex Luthor is on the hunt for the Batman who laughs. To catch his prey, he must follow a trail of broken heroes, leading him to Jim Gordon, one of the victims of the Batman who laughs deadly virus that turned the heroic police commissioner into the worst version of himself. The trail leads Lex to a lonely cell in the Hall of Justice, but it's not the good guys who've come to stop him. It's more of the Batman who laughs dangerous operatives, and if they couldn't resist the influence of the Dark Multiverse, then how can Lex? So this is really just kind of uh, fulfilling all of the events of this year when it came to uh, Lex versus the Justice League, uh, Batman Who Laughs versus Batman and Superman, the new Secret Six. So if you have been following along with that, this is going to be your conclusion for all of it. Next up, we have Batman number 87, written by James Tynan IV with art by Tony S. Daniel. I think Batman number 86 was a very strong uh effort out the gate uh tony s daniels art is just fantastic and james tyner the fourth knows what he's doing when it comes to the bat family uh it was a very strong issue and i'm looking forward to seeing what they do with this issue especially with the characters involved uh let's go ahead and just jump into the synopsis here the riddler has been lying low since his humiliating defeat as part of bane's army but as costumed assassins start to make their way into Gotham City, Edward Nigma may have the answers he's been looking for, or at least the answer to why Deathstroke is trying to kill him. Is it possible that Batman's tussle with Slade Wilson was all just a ruse to get the killer closer to his true target? So that sounds really interesting having this uh ongoing mystery of why all these assassins are descending onto gotham uh i think is a great story beat uh kind of reminds me of arkham origins and i don't think that's a bad thing so uh really really looking forward to picking this book up next up we have marauders number six uh, this book is written by Jerry Duggan with art by Matteo Lolli. Uh, this book's been great so far. The political scheming, the uh, high seas hijinks have been really, really fun to read, and I've just been loving it. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The Battle of Madripoor. The Marauders are caught between the forces of Madripoor and the Black King's machinations. Thankfully, they have two Omega-level mutants on board. So this is continuing the Madripoor drama. Uh, I love when uh, the X-Men go to Madripoor. It's one of my favorite locales in their stories, and I cannot wait to pick this book up. It's been really, really good. 
Next up, we have Wonder Woman number 750. This is a book that a lot of people have been waiting on for a while. Um, and I'm excited about it. Uh, Vita Ayala. Vita Ayala, there's that name again. That's going to be uh, taking on the um, Bat or the uh, X-Men Children of the Atom book. Uh, plenty of stories in here. This is kind of... Uh, Wonder Woman's uh, Action Comics 1000, Detective Comics 1000, big celebration, uh, tons, tons of uh, variant covers that are going to be coming out. There's going to be art by Elena, Elena Casagrande, Joelle Jones, and tons of other artists as well. I'm really excited about it. Let's just go ahead and jump into the synopsis here. An all-star 96-page celebration of the Amazon princess by longtime favorites and acclaimed new voices. In the lead story, Wonder Woman's epic Year of the Villain battle comes to a close, leading the way to new challenges ahead. Additionally, this oversized gem tells tales from Diana's past, present, and future by some of the greatest storytellers in the business, including Colleen Doran, Mariko Tamaki, the Teen Titans Raven team of writer Cami Garcia and artist Gabriel Piccolo, and legendary Wonder Woman creators returning to the character, including Gail Simone and Greg Rucka. So first of all, I love, love, love how many female writers and artists are on this. Love this. Wonder Woman is a celebration of all of the achievements that women have made in comics. And I'm really excited to see all of these names, including Mariko Tamaki, including the team of Cami Garcia and artist Gabriel Piccolo. Love them together. And having Gail Simone come back and write some Wonder Woman is never a bad time. So really looking forward to this book. Um, I'm also really looking forward to having to decide which uh, variant cover that I'm going to pick up because all of them are gorgeous. So I'm really looking forward to the struggle that I'm going to have to deal with. So pray for me on that. Uh, next up, we have Far Sector, number three of 12, written by N.K. Jemison with art by Jamal Campbell. This book's just been really, really good so far. I've been really enjoying it. I love the noir detective story that they're telling. It's kind of a slow burn at first, establishing everything. And now um, I think things are going to start to pick up been really good so far uh, and i'm just looking forward to getting into it so let's go ahead and get into it protecting the city enduring's population of 20 billion aliens gets even harder when rookie green lantern joe mullane is thrust into the middle of a massive protest that's about to get out of hand what do the protesters want the right to feel so that has a lot of implications uh just to give you, if you haven't been reading this book, first of all, why? Uh, second of all, um, the entire City Enduring's population uh, gave up emotions, which is a great, great set piece for a Green Lantern to be in. Um, so, again, really excited about this book. Can't wait to pick this up. But the big book of the week for me, the book that I am really, really excited about, is Batman, Curse of the White Knight, number six of Eight, written and illustrated by Sean Gordon Murphy. Uh, this book's been fantastic. I've been loving this book. Every issue that comes out, with the exception of the first issue, because I think it was probably the weakest issue so far. Um, this book has just been fantastic, and I've been really, really loving it. Uh, so let's go ahead and just jump into the synopsis. Gotham City's crushing curse is uncovered. Everything Batman thought he knew about the Wayne family secret is turned upside down as Azrael and the Joker usher anarchy into Arkham. And after a final word with Jack, Harley faces an impossible choice. 
So I am worried. <laughs> let me let me explain what I mean by that. Um, this issue, they've been talking about this for weeks, if not months, that this issue specifically is going to introduce a change in the status quo to Batman's uh, mythos that has not been done before. And the last time we got one of those, Alfred was killed. So I'm cautiously optimistic about this i'm sure they're going to stick the landing because uh this book has been so great so far and i can't wait to see what they do in this book i'm nervous but i'm excited about it so that does it for the uh comics countdown for this week to recap we have guardians of the galaxy number one year of the villain hell arisen number two of four batman number 87 marauders number six wonder woman number 750 far sector number three of 12 and batman curse of the white knight number six of eight if i missed any books this week feel free to shout them out and let me know through social media or through email i love discovering new books uh some of my favorite comics that i read in the past year were uh, recommended to me and i wouldn't have picked up uh otherwise so please give me your comic recommendations i really want to check them out um and overall this is going to be a great week and i'm feeling a great month for comics uh dc came out swinging this week so we'll have to wait until next week to see exactly how marvel will respond and that is going to do it for this week's episode uh feel free to reach out let me know what you thought about everything that we discussed today uh whether it's social media email whatever um i'd love to have that conversation with you i have been waiting to talk about Dragon Ball Z and Dragon Ball in general for a really long time. And I wanted to make sure one of my goals before we hit uh, episode 100 was that I do an anime episode. And I'm glad that I was able to do that. I would love to do more. So if you uh, would like to see me do more anime episodes, feel free to reach out. Let me know. Uh, let me know what topics you want me to talk about. Let me know what anime I need to check out. What anime you want me to look at what anime you want me to talk about i have quite a few different friends who are huge fans of anime and i would love to get them on the podcast to talk about that stuff so um hit me with all your recommendations hit me with all of your uh, suggestions and i will definitely take a look at them and definitely include some more uh some more anime episodes as we get into volume three um we're also pretty quickly uh, making our way to that uh, that episode 100. We are the we are on the march to 100 right now. Uh, eight episodes left. I'm really excited about episode 100, and I'm really excited about uh, finishing up volume two and heading into volume three of this podcast. I love doing this. It's been so good, um, and the podcast is growing all the time. So I'm really excited. Let's continue this forward momentum. And I, uh, I just, I love sitting down and recording this. Um, I just, I, I love this podcast and I love that, uh, you listeners are taking the time to give us a listen. And if you liked what you heard today, feel free to give us a uh, rating and review, especially on iTunes helps us out a lot. Uh, we're currently sitting at 4.9 stars. Would love to get us up to five stars five stars on itunes because that helps us helps our exposure and gets us right into the uh right into the atmosphere and the um 
the orbit of listeners just like you so feel free to do that recommend us to your friends um and just keep on listening so uh next week tune in for more uh more content as we continue our march to 100 uh next week also wraps up january so it's going to be our last episode for january as we uh get ready for the release of harley quinn and the birds of prey so next week we are going to be uh spotlighting a specific character giving you a rundown on that character we haven't done one of those in a little while giving you a full 101 uh full 101 lesson on a character so i'm really excited to talk about this and um yeah so tune in for that next week same geek time same geek channel but for now for geek explain this is eric zana thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time
Turn the tide, I'll hold the line. 